How you all doing? Good? That's good. I've been pretty flat all week, but I tell you, I'm excited to be getting into the final chapter, the climax of the book of Daniel. There's not much more exciting than hearing from the divinely inspired Word of God, is there? You know, God has given us such a gift. Now, as I was thinking about this message today, one phrase just kept coming to mind, and that is, this is the end of the beginning. Now, in November the 10th, 1942, Winston Churchill stood before the House of Commons and delivered one of his many memorable addresses. But in 1942, at the end of 1942, Churchill and indeed the Allies had seen defeat after defeat after defeat. They'd stood idly by as Hitler rolled into Austria and annexed that, as Hitler rolled into Czechoslovakia, Yugoslavia and um, took over there. They then saw Hitler amass troops on the border of Poland and smash through there, again moving uh, westward, southwest, um, towards France, and in six weeks, in record time, just destroyed France. They'd seen defeat after defeat. The Japanese Empire had been expanding throughout Asia and the Pacific. They'd come down and in early in, two, in 1942 had taken over Singapore, which had been um, considered to be basically an impenetrable island fortress and taken hundreds of thousands of prisoners along the way. Things had been bleak, yet he had determined and he'd got all of Britain rallying behind him that they will fight to the end. And in 1942, in, by November, they'd finally had... A glimmer of hope, a victory in Egypt where the forces of Rommel had been pushed back by, I think it was Montgomery. And um, he, had, he gave this famous address. And he said, we have a new experience. We have victory. A remarkable and definite victory. Now, this is not the end. It's not even the beginning of the end. But it is perhaps the end of the beginning. Henceforth... Hitler's Nazis will meet equally well-armed and perhaps better-armed troops. Henceforth, they will have to face in many theatres of war that superiority of, in the air which they have so often used without mercy against other, of which they boasted all round the world and which they intended to use as an instrument for convincing all other peoples that resistance to them was hopeless. We mean to hold our own, here we are, and here we stand, a veritable rock of salvation in this drifting world. Can you put yourselves in Churchill's shoes? Can you imagine what it would have been like facing what seemed an impossible force, an impossible empire that had swept Europe like a storm, taken everybody by surprise, and trying to rally the troops, trying to rally the people that this is a battle that can be won, and indeed, the tide of victory is turning in our favour. Now, this is essentially a similar situation to where Daniel found himself. He'd outlived the Babylonian Empire, the Babylonian Empire that had come through like a storm, come through like a plague of locusts and just devoured the land of Israel, devoured the land of Judah, taken everything of value and ransacked it and taken it hostage, taken Daniel and his three friends hostage along with them, taken all the greatest and brightest, destroyed the temple. And all of a sudden, Daniel gets this vision, a vision of the end, that the tide of victory 
is going to turn. See, he'd had these visions that Babylon would be succeeded by this Medo-Persian empire, which would then be um, followed. (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) I appreciate that. Followed by the Greek empire, that that would be divided into four, and then there'd be these two kings, the Seleucids and the Ptolemies, and so on and so forth. And we've gone through the incredible prophetic detail. But that would be followed by the Roman Empire, which was symbolized just by this savage beast. Empire would follow, empire would follow, empire. The people of God would be persecuted, would suffer, would face great tribulation. But Daniel, the time is coming. Daniel, who prayed three weeks, prayer and fasting, and then God sent his angel to speak and give him this vision that we picked up in Daniel chapter 10. And then the the vision that he received follows all the way through from Daniel 11 all the way through to Daniel 12. And it's this this prophetic vision of this calamity, of this time of great distress and tribulation that was going to come on. Just as Winston Churchill knew there were battles to be fought. They had to take back North Africa. They had to take back Europe. They had to take back the Pacific, much of Asia. There were to be battles that would be fought. But take heart, Daniel, was the message from Michael, or was the message from the the angel that came and gave him this prophetic vision. This is only the end of the beginning. Something Far, far greater is in store. There is victory in sight for those who would stand fast. Daniel, you have stood fast and here is the vision that I'm going to give you. So let's hit it. Open your Bibles if you've got them. Not Revelation. I've written Revelation 12 several times as I've been preparing. Daniel chapter 12. As a side note, man... You cannot separate the book of Daniel with the book of Revelation, with much of the gospel, with 1 and 2 Thessalonians. It's all interactive, and I've just had such a hard time culling this down to an acceptable length sermon, because I just want to go through it all and show you just how intricately uh, woven this story is, this same prophetic message, all the way really from the book of Genesis, where Jesus is prophesied to crush the serpent under his foot, all the way to the final chapter, Revelation 22 of the book of Daniel. It is the one story told all the way through, being inspired by the one true God. And so let's hit it. Daniel chapter 12, verse 1. At that time, now what time is he talking about? Well, in Daniel chapter 11, for the first 35 to 40 verses, scholars are very convinced. And if you get your history textbooks out, you'll see... All those events that were prophesied in intricate detail about the different battles between the kings, the different intrigue of the daughter of one king being given to another and then her changing sides and then all of a sudden there's another war because of that and someone's going to win and they're going to come in peace. All these specific detailed prophecies are all proof that the Bible is divinely inspired and has all come to pass. We can look back with the prophetic lens at history and go, well done God. It turns out you knew what was going to come. At chapter, at verse 40, however, Daniel writes, At the time of the end, the king of the south shall attack him. And he goes on for several more verses. But when it says at that time, what he's talking about is the time of the end. Now, this, these, these um, verses that followed have not yet been obviously fulfilled in history. And so we can take heart that this is actually talking about at the time of the end. And he says, at, the time of, at that time, at the time of the end, 
Michael, the archangel who stands guard over your nation, will arise. Does that send shivers down your spine a little bit? How cool is that? At the start of Daniel chapter 10, Daniel is praying and fasting, oh Lord. And God sends his angel, his messenger. And what does the messenger say to him? He says, at the very beginning that you started to pray, God in his throne room stood up and said, hey, go. But who opposed him? It was the prince of Persia. And who was going to oppose him after that? The prince of Greece. This power, this principality. And we've seen that this is the case throughout all of history. There was There are principalities and powers, these angelic supernatural beings that help bring up and empower these empires that oppose God time and time again. But God is not on his own. God has set up his angels, his archangel, Michael, to take a stand at that time to oppose this spirit. The very same spirit that was in Babylon, that was in the Assyrians before him, that was in the Medo-Persian Empire, that was in the Greeks and that was in the Romans and that is in our midst today setting up world empires, setting up these kingdoms and dominions against the people of God, against the kingdom of God. This is what we are faced with today as we look out and we see the world shaking their fist in rebellion at God, as we see the world turning their back on what God has ordained. And it's the same battle that Daniel faced as we face. And he says at that time, Michael is going to stand up for the people of God, for his holy people. And then there will be a time of anguish. Other translations say of trouble, of distress, of tribulation. And this is where we get the word for this end times period, which I talked about in Daniel chapter 9, verse 27. The 70th seven of Daniel, this seven-year period of great tribulation. And there will be a time of anguish greater than any since nations first came into existence. Now, if you think about all the trouble that the world has faced over millennia, And this is going to be far greater than all of those. We're talking about a serious time of trouble and distress. In fact, Jeremiah 30, where it talks about this, it says, can men give birth to kids? Then why do I see them holding their loins like this? Why why do they look like they're in labor trying to give birth? It is a time of great distress, a time of Jacob's trouble. Um, But at that time, every one of your people whose name is written in the book will be rescued. So I think the first question you want to be asking yourself is, how do I get my name in that book? (laughs) Very good question. We'll talk about that. But first, let's talk about this time of tribulation. So um, in Matthew chapter 24, we have this time, this moment that uh, Matthew records where Jesus is with his disciples, as he frequently is, and they say, what will be happening at the time of the end. And Jesus goes on and says, the day is coming when you will see what Daniel the prophet spoke about. You see, he took Daniel seriously. He took his prophecies seriously. And he'd obviously studied it. And he said, the sacrilegious object that causes desecration or the abomination of desolation, which has a better ring to it, I reckon, standing in the holy place. So the temple's rebuilt. There's the Holy of Holies where one priest, one high priest would only ever go once a year in fear and trepidation, having gone, undergone all the ritual cleansing to make atonement for the people before God. And this place will be defiled by the Antichrist who we come across in Daniel chapter 7, Daniel chapter 8, who was a type, who was Antiochus Epiphanes was a type of, but we know Jesus is saying that there is this man of 
lawlessness that 2 Thessalonians talks about, who will set himself up and will be that final climactic antichrist. And then in brackets, Matthew, just in case we're sitting there with our eyes glazing over, goes, Reader, pay attention! Listen up, guys, this is a serious message that I want you to pay serious attention to. I've put it in here for a reason, so that you would know, just like Winston Churchill, wouldn't it have been nice for him to know, by 1945, we are finally going to have overcome the Nazis. We are finally going to have beaten the Japanese and stopped their expansion and have bring about this time of peace. But he didn't know that. But it, Jesus is telling Daniel, listen, it's going to be hard. There's going to be trial. There's going to be tribulation. Men are going to look like they're in labor. That's how bad it's going to be. But take heart because I have overcome the world. And so, he's... He says, Reader, pay attention. Then those in Judea must flee to the hills. And he goes on about how, how terrible it will be for those in labor, those in pregnant. Get out of there. Don't look for the false messiahs, for the false prophets who are going to try to deceive you. But um, for there will be greater anguish in that time since the world began. And it will never be so great again. In fact, unless that time of calamity is shortened, not a single person will survive. And some suggest here that he's talking about uh, prophesying about nuclear warfare. But it will be shortened for the sake of God's chosen ones. That's comforting. And then, in verse 30, at last, the sign that the Son of Man is coming will appear in the heavens, and there will be a deep mourning among all the peoples of the earth. And they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. He's prophesying what Daniel 7 prophesied. Now, why will there be a deep mourning among all the peoples of the earth? Well, in the, in the book of 2 Thessalonians, Paul, writing to the Thessalonians, gives some serious, serious warning. And he warns, and he's writing about the coming of the Antichrist, about the end times. And this is something that everybody needs to take heed of. And um, for those of us who have not put our faith and our security in the certainty of um, Jesus Christ, then this should come as a dire warning that the time is now to give ourselves to God before these events happen. So let's read. In verse 5 of chapter 2, it says, Do you not remember that when I was still with you, I told you these things? And now you know what is restraining, that he may be revealed in his own time. Speaking of the revealing of the Antichrist. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains will do so until he is taken away, taken out of the way. Now, many good scholars would say that he who now restrains is the Holy Spirit that indwells the people of God, the church of God. And that before all these terrible tribulations come, God will take up his people. The word for it in Latin is rapture. Um, where, God, uh, where it talks about how Jesus will come and he will call up the dead and then those who are still alive at the time will be caught up into heaven and then will witness these events of these end time apocalyptic times happening. There are other scholars that disagree with that and say that will happen afterwards. Um, but for this reason and many other reasons such as the type of Enoch being raptured before the flood, the time of great tribulation for, for the world, when the world was destroyed. For instance, Lot being taken out of Sodom and Gomorrah before God brought down his wrath on those cities. Uh, 
and, and others, but I, I, I don't have time to go into that today. Let it just be known that God will take care of his people. Amen. And he says, for the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Um, only he who now restrains will do so until he is taken out of the way. And then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord will consume with the breath of his mouth and destroy with the brightness of his coming. This lawless one is one who sets himself up as the king of kings. It talks about in other prophecies how he will say, I am the God of all gods and sets himself above every other thing. And part of his abomination of desolation is saying, I even reject all the gods of my forefathers, all the gods of the world. They're nothing. I am the God above all gods. And what does Jesus say about this guy? He will consume him with the uh, breath of his mouth and destroy him with the brightness of his coming. The coming of the lawless one is according to the work of Satan with all power, signs, and lying wonders. And with all unrighteous deception among those who perish... Because they did not receive the love of the truth that they might be saved. And for this reason, God will send them strong delusion that they should believe the lie. That they all may be condemned who did not believe the truth but had pleasure in unrighteousness. This is a very dire warning. For those who continually reject God's word. For those who continually... Have, see the evidence of God through these prophecies that we've talked about, through creation, through everyday experiences, through the testimony of God's saints, of how God is at work in every single one of us. Those who harden their heart and say, oh, maybe that's good for, for you, but not for me. What, what Paul is saying is that God is going to, in judgment on those who continually harden their heart, just like Pharaoh continually hardened his heart every time Moses came and gave him really what was an offer of grace let my people go that it may go well with you and what did Pharaoh do he hardened his heart time and time again and there are people so many people that will harden their heart time and time again they will hear the word of God proclaimed and they will say no I don't believe it I refuse to believe it I will not bow the knee to the king of kings I am my own God I will do my own thing my own way and often will end up making a God in their own image. And what Paul says here is that those people, despite the, prophet, the prophetic warning that God has given us through the book of Daniel, Thessalonians, Revelation, and so much else of Scripture, even though that is all written there in black and white, they will not see it. They will be deceived and they will believe the lie that this man of lawlessness who comes with these incredible signs and wonders... They will be deceived by that, despite the warnings, and their hearts will follow after him. They, they will give themselves to the kingdom of Babylon to serve wholeheartedly for their own temporal profit and gain. And this is the warning that Jesus is giving people. And so it's in this context that we go on and read Daniel chapter uh, 12, verse 2 to 3. And he says, Many of those whose bodies lie dead and buried will rise up, some to everlasting shame and some to, uh, sorry, some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting disgrace. Those who are wise will shine as bright as the sky and those who lead many to righteousness will shine like the stars forever. You get to dry my mouth talking too much. You see, Jesus tells us 
there is coming a time of reckoning where every single one of us will stand before the God who knows and sees everything, who knows every thought of our mind, who knows every desire of our heart. And ironically, one of the things when I talk into people that that don't necessarily believe the Bible or about Jesus, one of the things they count on is that they'll be judged according to their works. They go, well, that's fine, you know, I'm a good person, I'll be fine. Now, I talked about this several messages ago, how God gave us the entire law to prove to us that we cannot keep His holy standards. It is like that MRI scan or that PET scanner that just lights up the sin in our life. That We're meant to look at it as if we look in a mirror and see the blemishes and go, woe is me, I am a sinner. I cannot stand before a holy, all-seeing, all-righteous God and have any hope. And therefore, because of that, we flee to Jesus. We cling to the cross and we say, in Jesus and in Jesus alone, he who was fully God and fully man, who freely gave his life for me, he is my hope and my salvation. 1 John says, if we confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in our heart that God raised him from the dead, we will be saved. Ephesians 2 verse 8 and 9 says, for it is by grace you have been saved through faith, not through anything you've done of your own. It is a It is not a gift of works, but it is a gift of grace so that no one can boast. And so we see that we can have this certainty, this assurance of salvation in God, so that when that time comes, when that resurrection from the dead that Jesus calls, um, says he will do, proving that he can do it by resurrecting himself as the first fruits, and he says um, through multiple parts of Scripture how the Son of Man will rise and uh, will will come down and the dead will be raised risen up and there will be this time of judgment and so for those who put their faith in Jesus Christ he says um, that they will rise to everlasting life what a wonderful joy and hope this is that we have how how much does that put all our all of our life's troubles and difficulties into context all the suffering the pain the death that we experience friends this is why I've called this the beginning uh, the end of the beginning because this life, it's just the, the, the intro. It's just the introduction. It's just the, whoa, wow. All of a sudden, I'm born into everlasting life. Now I see in part, but then I will see in full. I will see God face to face. I will see the new heaven and the new earth. And this is the hope that we have as Christians. And God says, uh, Jesus talking about this in John chapter 5, gives us the reason that that we can have this great hope and the reason that no one need walk out here condemned. He says, I tell you the truth, those who listen to my message and believe in God who sent me have eternal life. They will never be condemned for their sins, but they have already passed from death into life. And I assure you that the time is coming. Indeed, it's here now when the dead will hear my voice, the voice of the Son of God. See, Christians, we who have received Jesus into our heart We are no longer dead. We have passed into eternal life. 2 Corinthians says we have become the righteousness of God. We are sons of God. We are heirs heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. How glorious are the promises. Paul says in Romans 8 verse 18, I consider the current sufferings that we're going through as nothing compared to the glory that will be revealed when the Son of Man comes. And so he says... The Father has life in himself and has granted that same life-giving power to his Son. And he's given him authority to judge everyone because he is the Son of Man. Don't be surprised. Indeed, the time is coming when the dead in their graves will hear the voice of God's Son 
and they will rise again. Those who have done good will rise to experience eternal life. And those who have continued in evil will rise to experience judgment. But Brian, didn't you just say it's, it's not by our works? But what's, what's Jesus talking about? Those who have done good will rise to experience eternal life. And so we see there's, there is this little bit of a dilemma between some passages of Scripture, like Romans 4 verse 5 that says, But to him who does not work but believes on him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is accounted for righteousness. And then other passages like what Jesus just mentioned, where he says you'll actually be judged according to your works. And the answer is really quite simple. First of all, our faith is con- confirmed By our actions, the whole book of James um, takes great pains to go through that, how Abraham was a man who believed and it was credited to him as righteousness, but because of that belief, he went on and acted in accordance with God's commands. Now, 1 Corinthians 3, verse 12 to 15, I think summarizes really, if you could summarize it in a verse, it would be this. Regeneration is by faith. We are saved by faith. Evaluation is by works. And so in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 12 to 15, Paul writing to the Corinthians says, if you have Christ as your foundation, if he's your hope and your security, then that foundation will pass through the fire of judgment on the day and it will stand because Christ will never perish. The eternal life that Christ gives us will never be taken away. That is the foundation we build our life on. But he goes on to say, with the way that we live our life, we are building something, yeah? Yeah? Whether that's a house of straw or a house of stone, of good, sturdy, building stone, of house of, of jewels, of gold, of whatever will pass through the fire. And on the day of judgment, it will all pass through that fire. And whatever is um, of God will be purified and refined and made more beautiful than ever. And that will stand and last into eternity. And whatever is just of the world, whatever is of sin, whatever is of the kingdom of Babylon, will be consumed and destroyed. And for those who do not have that foundation of Christ, what does he say in Daniel? He says, they will rise to shame and everlasting disgrace. Now, the Bible talks a lot about hell. And unfortunately, through our cultural different medias, there's a lot of misconceptions about what hell is. Um, I'm not going to address all those today. But a couple of things, ways that the Bible describes hell is in Revelation chapter 20, verse 15, it says... It is a lake of fire where death and Hades itself is thrown in and consumed. In 2 Thessalonians 1 verse 8 to 10, it talks about how it is eternal destruction away from the presence of God. In Matthew 10, it says, Don't fear him who can destroy the body, and, uh, the body but after that can do nothing. Rather, fear him who has the power to destroy both body and soul in hell. And um, Romans 6.23 says, For the wages of sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life. You see, here is the thing. As I said, there is a day of reckoning awaiting everybody where we will all stand before a holy, righteous, omniscient God. Now, if you haven't noticed, it's not very polite to talk about hell in today's society. People get very sensitive. If you saw the latest Q&A with Martin Niles on it, um, you'll get the idea that if... If they could, people would cancel hell itself. It's a a horrible thought that people would suffer and there would be judgment. And so you see that on one hand. But on the other hand, what is one of the most common accusations that people bring against God? It's this. If God is good, 
Why does he allow evil to go on in the world? How can God judge people for the way they live? Why doesn't God judge people for the way they live? Do you see the dichotomy here? Do you see the hypocrisy that the world has found themselves in where we want a God that just loves and accepts and you know, affirms every single one of our perverse desires, yet when people inevitably get hurt because of the evil that people bring upon each other, we say, why isn't there judgment? Why does that pedophile continue to be able to you know, live and you know, have a, a good life even if it's in jail? How can this be? Where is the justice? And that is the cry of many people. Yet when it comes to the concept of hell as God's righteous judgment on sin, God's final declaration that sin will not go on forever, we have a real problem stomaching that. Do we not? And so the world rages at God for one thing and then rages him for the exact opposite thing. And C.S. Lewis talking about this says, Nonsense is still nonsense when you apply it to God. He's saying there are some things that are intrinsically impossible. You see, for God to have relationship with us, which is the very reason he created us, he had to give us free will. Now, we cannot say, God, give us free will, yet at the same time, take away my will. That is an intrinsic impossibility. It is what C.S. Lewis called nonsense. Yet that is what the world wants. And what is God's answer to this? God's answer is that he so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that no one need to be condemned. No one need to perish, but those who put their faith in him will inherit eternal life. And God says that hour is coming when the Son of Man will return on the clouds and bring judgment. But in 2 Peter chapter 3, he says, the only reason I'm holding off is because there are people here in this room, this very day, who have not yet given their life to Jesus Christ, who have not yet experienced the freedom of becoming a child of God, of freedom from sin. And I am patient and long-suffering because I love every single sinful human being. And I'm not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to eternal life. But there is a limit, there is a time when the Son of Man will come and he will bring that justice that the earth is crying out for. He will set everything right. But if we are not made righteous in Christ at that time, then it is over for us. Every one of us who have sinned, it is over. And so the most important question you can ask yourself today is, am I in that Lamb's book of life? Is Jesus the saviour of my soul? Have I put my faith, all my trust and hope in him? And if you have not, then I encourage you, do anything you can to find out how to do that. Come and talk to us. Tear down the doors if that's what it takes. But don't walk out of here being condemned to shame and everlasting disgrace. Jesus does not want that for you. And so that's how we move on quickly. Daniel chapter 12, verse 4 to 10. But you, Daniel, keep this prophecy a secret. Seal up the book until the time of the end. And many will rush here and there and knowledge will increase. He's anticipating this international travel pre-COVID <laughs> where people would go one country to the next to another continent, travel the world, all the place, all over the place. Knowledge will increase. Well, look at the digital age, my friends. Has knowledge increased exponentially all the time, ridiculously? 
Then I, Daniel, looked and saw two others standing on opposite banks of the river. One of them asked the man dressed in linen who was now standing above the river, How long will it be till these shocking events are over? The man dressed in linen who was standing above the river raised both his hands toward the heaven and took a solemn oath towards the, uh, by the one who lives forever, saying, It will go on for a time, times, and half a time. <laughs> So he's talking about three and a half. And as we learnt in Daniel 9 from a couple of weeks ago, this is talking about three and a half years, 42 months, 1260 days. When the shattering of the holy people has finally come to an end, all these things will have happened. We talked about this time of great tribulation, setting up the abomination of desolation in the temple. Three and a half years, he said, until that time of judgment. I heard what he said but I did not understand what he meant. So I asked, how will all this finally end, my Lord? Now, it might give you some comfort that Daniel himself struggled to understand what these prophetic visions meant. Daniel, who had this the divine gift of interpreting dreams and visions and, inter and um, prophetic uh, imagery, Daniel's like, this is hard to understand. Okay? So it's okay for us to hold this stuff somewhat loosely and go... Some of this is really hard to understand. We have an idea. The Bible's gone into quite a bit of detail, yet we're still seeing it as from afar. Daniel was two and a half thousand years ago. He's like, oh, I don't quite know what's going to happen. We have the incredible blessing of looking back through two and a half thousand years of history and seeing prophecy after prophecy fulfilled. Now, if you ask Daniel how he thought a lot of it would have been fulfilled, he probably would have got it quite wrong. But we can look back and go, okay, just like Jesus with his, um, the messianic prophecies. There were prophecies that he would come riding in on a donkey. And there were prophecies like in Daniel chapter 7 where he would come in the clouds in power and glory. Daniel would have been a bit confused by all that. We can look back and go, it's talking about two comings. Jesus coming as the suffering servant and the second coming coming as king of kings and lord of lords. And so as we get closer to these end time things which are difficult to understand, we gain increasing clarity. If the world goes on another 100 years, 200 years, they will have even more clarity as they get there. Just like if I'm approaching Mount Lofty, the closer and closer I get to it, the more I can see the, the vivid detail, the resolution increases. And so this is what happens as we approach these prophetic things. Now, you might disagree with some of the things I've said. No worries, that's fine. We'll see in the end. You know, that's all right. As we get closer, it'll become more and more apparent. Some of us might have better vision than others. Some might not. That's okay. It's something not for us to divide over, but to unify over and go, Jesus is coming back, as he said. I don't know exactly how it'll play out, but he is going to reign supreme. And he says, how will this all end? But, it, but the angel says to Daniel, go now, Daniel. Go now, Daniel. How cool is this? Daniel, who has seen empires come and go, he's seen, he's outlived the Babylonian Empire, who's faithfully persevered all the way to the end. His life threatened multiple times. And he's just saying, Daniel, well done, good and faithful servant. Well done, Daniel. You don't have to worry about this. You're going to die, you're going to sleep that sweet sleep, and then you're going to be raised when Christ calls you up. Oh, Daniel, just go your way. Be at peace. 
And isn't that just the most beautiful picture? For what I have said is kept secret and sealed until the time of the end. Many will be purified, cleansed and refined by these trials, but the wicked will continue in their wickedness and none of them will understand. Only those who are wise will know what it means. And so we get to the end of the beginning. He says, P.S. Daniel, from the time the daily sacrifice is stopped and that sacrilegious object that causes desecration is set up to be worshipped, there will be 1,290 days. So it's going to be there for 30 days beyond what time Jesus comes because we know from Revelation he talks about the 1,260 days. Now, why the extra 30 days? We don't know for certain. But it may be, some have postulated, that Jesus will judge people before that abomination of desolation who they have worshipped themselves during that time of great tribulation. And maybe that's the time where Jesus is judging them and that, that, that happens. Then there's another 45 days because he says, And blessed are those who wait and remain until the end of the 1335 days. What's that about? Not entirely sure. <laughs> Would love to give you the great answer, but um, the Bible doesn't specifically tell. Maybe that's talking about the millennial um, kingdom, the 1,000-year reign in Revelation chapter 20, where Jesus is assigning those who have been faithful to him during that tribulation period roles and um, who, who are going to be ruling over the, the, the new heaven and the new earth. Maybe it's something different. What we do know this is what we do know is this that when history overtakes prophecy, every detail will be seen and understood. And we can have great confidence in that. When history overtakes prophecy, every detail will be seen and understood. And so the angel tells Daniel, go your way. Awake to your inheritance at the end of days. Be at peace. Jesus died and he rose again. The death has been defeated. The resurrection is certain and our hope is secure. We started off this series and indeed the whole way through, it's been talking about the tale of two kingdoms. The kingdom of Babylon that sets itself up in opposition, that comes in with mighty power and destroys the people of God, subjugates them, takes them into exile and forces their religion upon them. The kingdom of Babylon where Nebuchadnezzar stands up and calls himself the king of kings and lord of lords. That constantly is opposing God's people saying you must bow down and worship this idol. You can only petition and pray to the king of, uh, it was King Darius in chapter 6. That's constantly trying to appeal to people through the lust of the flesh, through the power of, the, the promise of power, of security, of comfort constantly working in opposition to defile God's people. Yet what happens to the kingdom of Babylon in the end? In Revelation chapter 18, we get a really good picture. It says this. After these things, I saw another angel coming down from heaven, having great authority, and the earth was illuminated with his glory. And he cried mightily with a loud voice, saying, Babylon the great is fallen, and has become a dwelling place of demons, a prison for every foul spirit, and a cage for every unclean and hated bird. 
For all the nations have drunk of the wine of the wrath of her fornication. It was appealing to them. They wanted this. They wanted the power. They wanted the wine. They wanted the privilege that it afforded. They wanted the sexual immorality. They wanted the porn. They wanted all these things, but they still wanted heaven. And what George MacDonald has this great quote that C.S. Lewis uses at the um, beginning of The Great Divorce, this book, where the whole premise of it is essentially this. There is no escape. There is no heaven with a little hell of it, hell in it. No plan to retain this or that of the devil in our hearts or pockets. Out Satan must go, every hair and feather. And so he says, And the merchants of the earth have become rich through the abundance of her luxury. It's appealing sometimes to follow Babylon. But out, every hair and feather of Satan must go. We cannot bring a little bit of hell with us into heaven. God calls us to something greater. God calls us to a righteousness that reflects the image of his son. And we see this here when he says in verse 4, And I heard another voice from heaven saying, Come out of her, my people, lest you share in her sins, and lest you receive of her plagues. For her sins have reached to heaven, and God has remembered her iniquities. The call of Revelation chapter 18, the call of the entire book of Daniel, the call of discipleship of Jesus Christ himself is as simple as this. Come, take up your cross, follow me. Be my disciples as you are exiled in a foreign world occupied by the enemy. Be a Daniel. Be a Daniel. Be a person devoted to prayer person devoted to the scriptures, a person that gets his people around him and prays and stands firm, no matter what tribulation, no matter what anguish, no matter what distress and turmoil might come our way, persevere to the end because he who is in you is greater than he is in the world. And this is the promise that God has left us with. I will never leave you and I will never forsake you. I have told you these things, this time of trouble that is coming, so that in this world, even though it comes, you may have peace. Take heart, I have overcome the world. Lord, may that be our prayer. May that be the prayer of our hearts. May you make us a church of Daniels, holy and completely and utterly dedicated to you and you alone because you are the one who has saved us. You are the one who will come and raise us from the dead that we might inherit eternal life, Lord. May no one walk out here without that certainty, without that promise of the redemption of their souls. Father, without knowing that they can stand before you confident and unashamed as a child stands before their father, knowing that on that day you will say, well done, my good and faithful servant. Enter into the paradise that I have in store for you. Oh, Father, you are worthy, you are holy, you are wonderful. May you take the place of honor in our hearts as we go about our lives. In Jesus' holy name we pray. Amen. You've been listening to a sermon from Hills Baptist Church. To find out more or to hear other great content, find us at hillsbaptist.com or on your podcast app. 